0: Hi everyone! Welcome to this special episode of Carolyn Talks, and I'm your host Carolyn Hines. And today I'm joined with writer, director, editor, and composer Andy Mitten to discuss his new psychological horror, The Harbinger, which premiered at the 2022 Fantasia Film Festival, Festival. And this film. It's a mind trip. It was not what I was expecting at all. And I think for a lot of people, Andy, this film is going to be, is is going to kind of like play with their heads and I think also play with the emotions because it kind of did with mine, especially from my own experience. And straight off the bat, like, you know, this film, it was shot during COVID, of course, but you you make it exist within the world of COVID. So can you st- um, tell me about making that decision for the film first? like Where did the inspiration, inspiration for this film came from and and in the way you do it because like it's about COVID like there's no denying that but it's about how COVID affects us mentally and emotionally.
1: Yes well thank you and thank thank you for having me as well it's really a pleasure to talk to you. Um, Yeah it was it was a a debate very early on about how directly to to place it in, in, in COVID or whether to put it in a parallel space where people could have some distance from it. Um, And I decided it was worth taking on, um, even though there were some reservations that not everyone would want to go there. But, you know, I think as storytellers, we're always looking for how to relate to as many people in the audience as possible around the world. And when else in our lifetimes is there this collective shared dread that everyone on the planet understands, everyone can tap into? I think that reality... It's just irresistible for storytellers, and you have to be careful doing it. But I know horror audiences well enough to know that, like, they're not always just looking for escape. They just require that 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 you you meet their expectations as a horror movie. First, and you know, so I just kept checking in with like, you know, my my twelve year old self, like my horror movie fan roots, and making sure that I was satisfying that version of me. Um, as I also had these serious themes. Uh, to address and and tried to create a balance there.
0: Mm. And the thing with, so I'll be, I'll be completely honest. I've had COVID twice and I still have long COVID symptoms. So for me and for like, and I'm sure for anyone, especially who has either had the infection or has, um, or knows people closely who had it or lost people because of this virus. Like this film is, if they see the film, it's going to tap into something. I think that it's a fear. And I think that's the um, main underlying theme of this fear. It's a fear of the unknown, but it's a fear, but it's a fear, like we talk a lot about, when you talk about horror, it's like that unknown specter. Like even while I was watching this film, I got such a fear of even wanting to call the the character, the harbinger, and it happens, and there's this brilliant scene with uh, with a video video call with the main character, Monique, and her friend Mavis that they do with a woman. And that actress, like kudos to her, because she really conveyed... That sense of trepidation. And I even, even, but even before that scene, I in my head was calling it the specter. Even in my notes, I have it as the specter because I didn't I even like want that. to lose. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to call it the harbinger because when you use the word harbinger, it means something um, of doom, you know? And for a lot of people, that's what COVID is it's the sense of doom. And it's like, you know, the virus exists, but you can't see it. But in the film, you give it a physical embodiment and, the, the, and not the virus, but the fear you know, and the trepidation and also the sense of loss that you have. So talk about just giving it this physical presence of fear, like giving fear a physical form and the sense of loss, because I think that's what the herminger means. It's also about loss as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was processing the same things we were all processing, you know, summer of 2020. um, We were all really feeling the weight. Um, I was lucky enough to be I was tucked away with my family you know we were isolated but I had loved ones around me but not all the people I love in my life did and I think we all felt the sense of like there's something we've been taking for granted in our lives like the ability to reach out and help each other to to go to each other when we're in need to connect with one another and our identity is like that's the fabric of our identity and so for some people a lot of people that 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 fat that there was a dissolution of that fabric that that started to go away and 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 um with the amount of loss just one after another you you, you can't process that you can't honor those people properly and that is you know it, it we all carry around mortal fears but i feel like it evolved during this time to another level um and the fear of being forgotten i i became interested in that um it also fits really well into sort of a horror movie machinery um, the idea of uh, you know we're used to obviously lives being at stake in horror movies but the very essence of yourself the existence of yourself you know, any you know uh, the things you've affected in the world the idea of all of that going away you just never were at all um, seemed like a good way to sort of reflect it and uh, and also just have a surprising sort of propulsive, story um Mm. that i could deal with that weight and that sadness but also you know uh there's the characters have a sense of gallows humor about it at sometimes there there's there's times when the pressure releases there's warmth in the movie um and i think there's a lot of big hearts in these characters and the actors who play these characters have really big hearts i've been saying you know it's a cold bleak movie to some degree it was a very warm set it's a very warm place to work with a lot of uh, loving people. Um, so, you know, when my mother and my children and everyone in my life is confused about why I make horror movies or why I would want to reflect um, these dark images back into the world, I, you know, I, I remind them of that that, you know, this, this, these stories are told actually with a lot of love and a lot of respect for these feelings and hopefully offer some avenue of catharsis. Uh, you know, for audiences to experience it.
0: Right, and you talk about the warmth and the characters and the cast and like, so like your main character, Monique, um, is played by Gabby Bees and then there's another, um, her co-lead, I would say, is Mavis, played by Emily Davis. Now, I think their character ca- because their characters each, it, it's interesting because where Mavis starts out, is kind of like the, the same arc that Mo takes going towards the end of the film. So talk a bit about, creating these these two kind of like they're not even converging character um, arcs but they're kind of like these intertwining character arcs it's an interesting way to like structure the story because we see like for instance for um I kind of just like it's just occurring to me like if if like using a whole alien um reference if an alien was to drop down onto earth like in the midst of the pandemic they would be moved And Emily is the people is it will be us who've been here during the pandemic from the beginning. So talk a bit about structuring the story like that. And then also casting because their chemistry has worked because there is a warmth there for sure. But then there's this growing, there's this fear that both of them have that's so palpable that really comes through. And like, it's all about the casting because if their chemistry didn't work for this particular type of story, it would, I I think the film wouldn't feel the same.
1: Of course, no, they, they are the center and the core and the anchor of the film and the, the, the they, I mean, their preparation and their ability to, to be so connected is, is what allowed us to make our days. And, uh, you know, it's, it's saved me every single day on the shoot. So I'm very grateful for that. But in structuring the characters, yeah, I th- you know, the idea for me was we will, we'll be, we're gonna be hardwired as an audience to Monique. And I thought it would be interesting, you know, we see Mavis having a nightmare at the beginning. We get little glimpses of what she's seeing, but we don't have access really to, to what's inside her head. And I thought it would be interesting to go visit her as Monique. And when we first hear about the nightmares, it's in a kind of almost like a, like a theater scene. Um, you know, we, we hear her talk about the nightmares. We hear a long description of what she's going through. We don't cut to those places we don't have access to those dreams. So I kind of wanted to create the feeling that we're gonna be discussing these things maybe even more than experiencing them. Like it didn't bother me that people might think, oh, is this gonna be more like a play? Because then since we're hardwired to Monique, when she starts to go to those places, I I was hoping that would be a, a sort of welcome to surprise that we would get to hear about it first, experience the dread, see that amazing dread in emily davis's eyes as she tells that story and then take that dread into our experience with monique and you know i, th- I just thought it would raise the stakes um and then they did everything to to support it uh, they're both stage actors so that worked to my advantage they're used to playing out you know long scenes and i warned them i'm like i'm going to take long takes we're going to really let you listen to each other and, and play these scenes out. I'm not going to cut it to ribbons. Um, and it was just the best uh, collaborative experience I've had between both of them. They're both stars, in my opinion. They've both been on Broadway since we wrapped um, and are just rising through the ranks in New York in such an exciting way. So I'm, I'm, I love them both and I'm really proud of them.
0: No, they both did a fantastic job. And. The scene, like the scene you talk about, where like we we, we get to hear um, Mavis dis- discuss her dreams. Um, Mo is just standing, and she's like, "I'm not going to judge you. I'm just going to listen." And for anyone, it happens to many people, this happened to me, where you have a dream within a dream within a dream. That is one of the most unsettling experiences anyone could ever have because they, you're, you're like you're it messes with your mind because you're like, am I still dreaming? And I think to use that as a way to discuss how, um, whether it's the COVID or even just an illness or even like depression, because that's also something that most suffers from. And again, personal experience, that's something I also suffer from it's something where like your mind, our mind is our greatest asset, but it's also, I think, our greatest weakness because we still don't know so much of how the brain works. We still don't know so much of how the human psyche works and how we manifest fears within dreams and how dreams can become reality. You know, there's like premonitions. And that's, I think, another, another big thing in the film. So talk about just the psychology of this film and the psychology of fear that you that you did. So like, what kind of research did you do to get into that?
1: Well, unfortunately, some of it was involuntary research because I was in a bout of nightmares at the time. And I'm not prone usually to nightmares, but during this time, they were happening every night. They were ongoing. They, they went on for way too long. I didn't understand them. Um, and it, yeah, it made me want to write about them. It's a unique kind of fear. There's nothing like it because dreams are, like you put it really well, we can't explain them. So, immediately, that's a really palpable fear. We, we also can't escape them because we have to sleep. Yes. So, we're forced into these spaces, into spaces that we don't understand why they exist. Um, so, it's really fertile ground for storytelling and for horror, as far as I'm concerned. That, um, you know, I think a lot of people avoid the dreamscapes in horror because they figure Freddy Krueger sort of has the market cornered on that right but uh
0: Freddy Krueger oh my gosh I could not sleep for years I, I like for yeah. years I couldn't sleep with in the center of my room I would I could only sleep with my back against a wall
1: <laughs> yeah, same yeah here. I I, uh, yeah. I I was terrified of Freddy as a kid and and uh you know where anyone who works in dreams and horror is standing on the shoulders of Freddy Krueger to some degree but <laughs> we also thought there's a different approach here there's there's more to explore and and uh Tonally, I was looking more at like films like Jacob's Ladder, something like that, um, that were more, you know, psychological mind fuck, sort of, you know, in the demonic realm and tried to put all that together. And so it, 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 it wasn't so much research as it was looking within myself and realizing these are the things that, that scare me. And uh, as makers of horror movies, we, we run on the faith that the things that scare us. Are, are yeah. hopefully the same things that scare other people, and we're going to make a good connection with everyone.
0: For sure, and we, and you did something interesting that I don't normally see in horror. From what I from films that I've seen and on TV shows and stuff, and like you let you let you enter, you introduce the concept of the uh, foie do. Um, it's called shared delusional disorder (SDD) or shared psychosis. And it was so interesting because I wasn't expecting that. But when you, but when I started to that's what you're doing, I'm like, this makes brilliant, this makes so much sense because the fear of being sick, especially within the pandemic, is something that we all share. You know, like especially if you're in a family. <coughs> oh my
1: gosh! <laughs> no, take your time. You're good.
0: Oh, that's one of my uh, my long COVID symptoms. Still coughing yeah. after two years. <laughs> um, but it's it, it's interesting again using dreams and dreamscapes to do this. But as you said, it's all. It was also interesting to me that we didn't get to see Mavis's dreams. But we know that what Mo is seeing; these are her own manifestations based on her own history, her own personal connection. Yes. So, um, I so like it made me wonder, I'm like, is this what Mavis is um, experiencing? But then, from her own descriptions, it's not. So, talk a bit about you have like the sheer psychosis, but like but varying um experiences within those.
1: Yeah. Well, I thought about the harbinger's motivation in these cases is, you know, as expressed by the demonologist in the, in the story to sort of wear down your will uh, and burrow in to kind of weaken an already isolated soul to the point where he can get strong enough Um, that that's sort of how he operates. So that was my starting point. And I think that if you're the harbinger and you're looking, you know, every individual is going to have a different, you're gonna have a different avenue of how to get under their skin and get to the things that frighten them. So he pretty quickly with Monique goes to her family and her very uh, raw vulnerability of having just left them behind, of having made a very difficult choice. And he goes right for the nerve of that choice. And I think for Mavis, it was just, I think it was a longer game for Mavis. I think Monique has sort of an accelerated version of Mavis's arc. But yeah, I, I, I she she has her own her own issues and her own way in, and I feel like he you would attack everyone differently. He would look for your weaknesses and and go for them.
0: He did. Um, so I want to talk a bit now about a little bit about the technical aspects and little details that i I, I noticed. So for one of them was the mask that Mavis wore, which is the flowers. with the they called it the the big mask that they wore. so yeah, so yes, yeah, so and the big mask they wore they would keep like flowers and herbs and stuff to like get rid of the smell to help mitigate the smell of the decaying um bodies because they start to them during the bubonic play. So when I saw her wearing that mask, I love those kind of little details. I was like, wait, is this a reference to that? So I was like, I have to ask him. I'm like, is her mask a reference, reference to that, was it?
1: It wasn't, I, I became aware of it, but it wasn't me. I certainly can't take credit for that. So our costume designer, uh, Candice Phelan, who was local to Binghamton, New York, where we shot, um, she had been making masks for uh, everyone in town. She just sews mm-hmm. them and, and makes them. So she made handmade uh, all the masks for the movie, and um, I was picturing something a little more neutral, and she brought her up for a fitting one day with that mask on and and something about it, you know, just connected. I didn't even put my finger on what you discussed right away, but it did strike me as we were shooting that there was a nice parallel there. Um, But I just, I I thought it was a nice texture, honestly, to begin with. I wasn't looking deeper than that. I wish I could.
0: <laughs> and I was just curious about it. And then uh, again, like as I mentioned at the beginning, like you all, you're also the editor and the composer for this film. So, like, how being a composer and being an editor actually helped to structure the beats and the flow of the film and with the music, because it does have this, it like the film doesn't have a dramatic climax, you know? But what it has, and I think, like, to me, I kind of read it as like when you're suddenly, when you're waking up from a dream, is like uh, suddenly, it's either sudden or as you just have this slow realization of when you wake up, like suddenly you're just awake. So like talk a bit about the technical, the technicality of the editing and the composition and how that, what challenges did doing all of that actually provide for you? Or like what made it easier?
1: Well, the challenges are certainly obvious because I can get stuck in my own tunnel vision really easily and, and start going down bad roads and making bad choices. And uh, I'm capable of that. So I've got great, producers on either side of me, uh, Richard and Richard King, Clark Freeman, Jay Dunn, who I, I constantly be turning people to people and telling them to stop me if they see me doing anything wrong. And because um, it's hard to wear the hats, but I just try and separate the hats. I, I uh, the, the editor version of me is not a fond of the director version of me. He's always trying to fix the mistakes that the director made. And the director version of me is always trying to fix the mistakes that the writer version of me made. I feel like I can't just be protecting my own work at every phase or I'll lose the opportunity to reinvent and find new angles but the combination of editing and composing creates a lot of ease and flow because if I hit a wall with editing and I realize I need a new tempo or I need to stitch something together in a certain way I don't have to wait till morning to call my composer and be like hey can you work something up like this and get it in a few days and then when I'm a few days away from the thought I have to put it in I can just Go over to the keyboard and sketch something out, and go back to the computer and, and try it. So my flow in just putting it together, it, it creates a real nice ease in, in that department.
0: So my last question for you will be: um, Okay, so there's two interesting things. Like one thing, I never trust white kids in any kind of horror movie. Anytime I see a white uh, child, I'm like, you mean? I'm like, you, yes. I'm like, you mean death? So. <laughs> And then there's also the interesting thing with the sparrow. Honestly, I don't trust white kids in horrors. Um, and it was proven. Like, you did a fantastic thing where you kind of had me psyched. So I'm like, okay, so maybe this is one white kid I could trust. And then it was like, no. Um, <laughs> so kudos on you for making me give in, letting my guard down there for just a minute. Um, but um, the, the small thing I want to talk about now is the sparrow, the concept of the sparrow. So this is a nickname that most parents, um, her family had for her. And I thought it was like, I'm like, oh, this is cute. But then close to the end of the film, it made me think of how like sparrows are very flighty and like they don't stay in one place for very long. And for the film, uh, there's the concept of like, again, we talked about loss, but like people just not being there anymore, you know, about the pandemic taking people and sickness, taking people away. And like when they're gone, like you're left to rest. So I wanted to know, like, was this power kind of a reference to that? It's like, she was here, but then it's like, she's gone. She He's no more like once you, ne- you never see n- the same sparrow, I believe, ever again. So was that um, was that a part of it?
1: Yeah, that was a part of it. But that foundationally, it, it is a um, uh, through time, the sparrow has uh, been used to symbolize hope. So I really, I think that centrally to this movie, hope is the theme, hope in the face of hopelessness, hope when there's no reason you should be hoping that you can see, but you hope anyway, because that's what we do. Um, so the Sparrow, I think that's what she is for her family. And the reason why when she is flown away, that um, they still feel lost, even though they can't remember why. Um, so for me, it was just a nice storytelling device to, to sort of represent my theme and string it through uh, to, to the final moments. And then, yeah, the, everything else you just mentioned was nice kind of frosting on that. But for me, yeah, it was just nailing down. she Monique is hope in the stories.
0: Mm-hmm. OK, great. Thank you so much for talking with me, Andy. This was a great you. discussion. I wish we had a longer time, but I have because I have more questions, but that's it. <laughs> Thank you so much. I congrats on the film and to you and the cast and the team.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much. It was a pleasure.
0: So, that was another episode of Carolyn Talks. And in this episode, I spoke with writer, director, editor, and composer Andy Mitten about his new film, The Harbinger, which premiered at his 2022 Fantasia Film Festival. This was a great discussion. I appreciate Andy taking the time to speak with me about the film and answer some of my slightly nerdy questions about some of the details. It's a pretty trippy film um, But I think it's it's really interesting In the way how he taps into the Psyche of people um, As we experience this COVID pandemic Which is not yet ended And the ways it has affected many Many of us psychologically and emotionally And mentally And kudos to him and his cast And the, and the production team for the work they've done I think they did a really good job Conveying a lot of things that many of us have been, are still currently going through. You can find other episodes of Caroline Talks on bywaythepodcast dot com as well as on Acast and other podcast streaming platforms. There is video versions of my episodes on my YouTube channel under my name Carolyn Hines, and as well as. Interviews that I've been doing with the African-American Film Critics Association, where we do our virtual roundtable with black creators in the film and television industry, as well as my Asian drama podcast, Beyond the Romance drama podcast, also on my YouTube channel and in podcast format on But Why Do podcast, as well as on ACAST and other podcast streaming platforms. This has been a great year. With regards to interviews, not so great in other areas, but as I always enjoy speaking to, to directors and just like picking their brains about the things that inspire them and why they do the things they do in films. And it has been a pleasure. I haven't been able to cover Fantasia Fest as much as I wanted to because of health um, reasons, but you know, I, I appreciate the, the things that I've been able to do so far. And um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at H 12 that's at C-A-R-R-I-E-C-N-H-1-2. Usually my most recent work, interviews, articles, and what have you are in my pinned tweets as well as linked in my uh, Instagram post. You can also go into my Linktree account, which is in my Twitter uh, profile where you can find links to, again, the YouTube channel, my R3 page where all of my published work is um, housed, um, and different sites where you can find my work and content. And um, I think that's it. Until the next episode of Karen and Talks, everyone, Stacy.